Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, the campaign for the affirmative in the voice to parliament debate is up and running as we always knew it would be. The mainstream media, sports stars, the government and even people like senior federal liberal MP Julian Lisa have burst out of the blocks with their feel good messages about how the voice will finally once and for all, after years of apologies and hundreds of billions of dollars spent, finally close the gap and unify Australia. But it's the ABC that is actually leading the charge. It's producing a constant stream of pro-voice content from Australians they call proud members of various tribal clans. Why does the ABC insist these people are proud of their family and tribal heritage? You only need to specify you're proud of something if there is reason not to be so. Otherwise, the word's redundant. So what is the ABC implying by this patronising reminder? Well, that aside, the ABC has also produced a video that it calls Everything You Need to Know About the Indigenous Voice Referendum which you might not be surprised to know, excludes the bits the ABC thinks you don't need to know. It starts with this. Since Federation, most governments have struggled to make decisions that improve the lives of Indigenous people. Take the White Australia policy or the Stolen Generations. They were actually policies that made the lives of Indigenous people much harder. Combine that with the issues caused by colonisation, and a lot of Indigenous people are worse off than the broader population in terms of health, wealth and education. Closing that gap has been the aim of a lot of different governments, but nothing has made a huge difference so far. And as of last year, the gap is mostly getting wider. Most governments have struggled to make decisions that have improved the lives of Indigenous people. The ABC seems unaware of how patronising this statement is. Are Indigenous people incapable of making decisions to improve their own lives themselves? As a fundamentally non-racist person, I say emphatically that the answer is yes, they can make those decisions themselves. Besides, the one policy that causes more problems than it solves is the one that pays our Indigenous brothers and sisters to sit around our outback communities doing nothing, which leads to depression, alcoholism, abuse, rape and violence. 
Naturally, the ABC doesn't say The Voice will solve that particular problem because that is too long a bow even for the ABC. The video fails to mention the significant flaws in the proposed voice, which include its very real potential to become a massively expensive and cumbersome bureaucracy, as if we don't have enough of those already, or whether the High Court will one day rule that the Parliament will be compelled to act on the advice of the advisory panel. Again, a very plausible outcome. The ABC dismissively sums up the case for the negative this way. Even within the Indigenous community, there are a range of views on The Voice, and there are questions being raised over whether this is the right thing to do. Do we want to become an advisory body to the colonial system? To not fix the economic issues, education and so on, that needs to be done. We want our own black parliament. We want, we want self-determination. Many have lived through Indigenous bodies being created and corrupted and abolished and have lost faith in institutions. There's also the fact that The Voice will be able to give advice only, but the parliament and governments don't have to take it on board. That has some worried it'll just be symbolic and not deliver real change. Some people want more action on truth-telling and treaty before The Voice, and some want more practical policies tackling disadvantage to be rolled out. Others want a different type of recognition, like seats in the Senate reserved for Indigenous representatives, where they could theoretically have more of a say. And there are those who see the Constitution as a colonial document, and they don't want to be recognised in it. In the broader population, there are some who don't think Indigenous Australians should have a designated channel to the Parliament. There are some? who think that Indigenous people shouldn't have a designated channel to the parliament, I'd suggest that would be almost all Australians if it were rephrased for what it really is, dividing us by race. But never mind all that, because... But supporters say, but supporters say change has to happen and this model is the best compromise to get First Nations people both constitutional recognition and a say on government policy. The existence of a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples does not negate anyone else's abilities to be heard, to have their voices as heard as well. It's not a zero-sum game here. Well, if the ABC won't give its viewers the very real and valid causes for concern against the proposal, who will? Let's ask Professor David Flint, who has been the national convener of the Australians for Constitutional Monarchy since 1998 and led the No campaign leading up to the referendum for a republic in 1999. Professor Flint managed a tenacious campaign against formidable opponents, including the mainstream media, the majority of politicians, and a galaxy of celebrities and sports stars. In other words, it's a sim similar lineup to the one we are currently facing with the voice referendum. He joins me now to explain how he did it. Professor David Flint, welcome. Thank you. Professor, how formidable was your opposition uh, in, uh, in favour of the Republic in 1999? Well, the opposition was formidable, as you rightly said. Most of the politicians, 
almost all of the mainstream media, uh, some, there were some exceptions, uh, particularly Alan Jones, uh, and uh, in, in addition, the Republican movement was very well funded, superbly funded. Mr. Turnbull had his own wealth, but he also could draw on some very wealthy supporters. So there was a formidable opposition. Uh, the Labour Party was strongly in support of the, the proposal, and a large number of liberal politicians were also in support. So the opposition was formidable. There's no doubt about that. But uh, th there were certain things that you really need if you're going to run a good campaign. There's a fundamental need for there to be a level playing field. I don't mean that both sides have the same amount of money. Well, that's that would be ridiculous. Or well, actually, Professor, before you move on, let, let's just focus on the amount of money. You, you, you said that there was a lot of money behind the Yes campaign. Comparatively speaking, how much did you have? I mean, did you have a, a smaller proportion of what they had, as far as you knew? And how did you raise your money? Is it, is it expensive to run these kind of campaigns? It is expensive. But uh, Mr. Turnbull's crowd, the Australian Republican movement, had an enormous amount of money. They had millionaires. He, he particularly was said to be funding a large part himself. And they were, you can measure it in terms of advertising. At that time, not now, but at that time, television advertising was crucial. And they had sufficient money to have their own television advertising from before the date before the official advertising came in. There was an official amount given to the No campaign and the Yes campaign. They each received the same amount of money, seven and a half million, but that could only begin on a certain date. Uh, the Australian Republican movement had their own television advertising. We couldn't afford any television advertising. It was just beyond us. All we could afford were offices, particularly offices in Sydney, but also the other capitals. Some of them were Officers given, they were grace and favour officers that people gave us. They, they were going to pull down a building, for example, in one city, and they, they said we could have an office for six months before the referendum. And we had enough money to get uh, some employees, particularly high-level employees in Sydney, two. We had two high-level employees, but we also had uh, an employed person in each state. So we didn't have much money in terms of running a campaign, but it was sufficient because you need more than money to run a campaign. You really need three things. You, you really need, firstly, preferably a level playing field. And by that, I mean a, a, a government, a, a, a legal level playing field. And we had that. We had that with John Howard, and Nick Minchin was his uh, assistant minister, not assistant minister, he was the minister of state. They ran a very fair level playing field. We knew, for example, that there would be a yes, no booklet. We would have equal access to that. We knew in all legal questions, we would be treated equally and that the government would not be undermining us by running a campaign on behalf of the other side. Unfortunately, the present government has come, they've not come with clean hands. John Howard ran a gold-plated level playing field, as did previous Labour governments, but he was even better because he gave each side an equal amount of money. 
But uh, the Albanese government has come in and they've been very bad. They've come with, they've come with a, a, an intent to favour one side. And they did this in the machinery legislation. They were going to do away with the yes-no booklet, knowing full well that the yes case had a lot of money, a lot of business support, a lot of very rich funders, and they would be able to do all the advertising, do everything they wanted to do, whereas the no case wouldn't have that. They knew that. And they also were going to use government money for the yes case. It was going to be disguised as money giving information and dealing with misinformation. That was very obvious from their first attempts. They withdrew a bit from that, but having done it once, I have no doubt that it will be less of a level playing field than there was in 1999. But I don't think that is that is uh, that will necessarily completely undermine the no case. You need well, let's just sorry sorry to interrupt. Let's just talk about the level playing field uh, in regards to the media. The media is already uh, sort of laying down its cards, um, coming down in favour of the yes uh, case mostly. What was the media like in your day? Was it more even-handed? No, it was even more extreme. Every newspaper was a Republican newspaper, and all of the television stations turned into uh, centres of Republicanism. Uh, the radio was a bit different, though not all broadcasters on talkback were in favour of retaining the system. Uh, Alan Jones was the principal person and being the prom most prominent broadcast in Australia, he was magnificent. And he came down with a wonderful answer to people who phoned him up and said, look, I don't know what to do, what should I do? And he eventually would say at the end of whatever advice he gave, he would say, if you don't know, vote no. If you don't know, vote no. And that became one of, the, one of the slogans of the campaign. If you don't know, vote no. A really wonderful slogan. Yeah, like if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Yes. Uh, and, and this really reflects the intention of the founders. Because the founders said, and if you go back and look at the text and the books and so on, you find that the, the reason they put in the reason they put in the requirement for the change in the constitution, not that it be changed by the politicians by a supermajority, as in Barbados, for example, you have these countries where the politicians can change the constitution. In Australia, it also had to involve a referendum. It had to be adopted nationally and federally. That is a majority of people in a majority of states have to approve it. So. Well, let's, let's talk about how that is embedded into our constitution. Back in 1999, it seems like all the elites read the room incorrectly. Everyone, as you say, all the elites, the media, the politicians and so on, all backed the, uh, the republic. Turns out the, uh, the public disagreed with them. How do you think the root, are you reading the room similarly this time around, Professor? I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I think that uh, they are misreading it and they're misreading the fact that the vote is secret. People may be embarrassed about how they're going to vote, but they will vote the way they think they should. In fact, the founders summed this up very well. They said the reason these, it's, may, it's more difficult to change the constitution, which it should be. The reason it's more difficult is not to delay change, not to stop change, but to delay change. To delay change until the people are satisfied 
that the change being put to them is desirable, irresistible and inevitable. Desirable, irresistible, inevitable. It's for those proposing change to satisfy the people of that change. And people should be embarrassed by the fact that they're not, they're not clear on what's happening. They should just vote no unless they're satisfied that the change will improve governance and that it is desirable irresistible and inevitable. Yes, but Professor, we live in an age of constant media and the message is coming across loud and clear, you must vote yes. Now, back in 99, you, as I said, ran a tenacious campaign against formidable opponents, but you were very organized. I get the feeling at the moment that with only months to go, the no campaign is rather disorganized. Uh, and if they don't get organized soon, um, they, this, this campaign may well be lost and Australia could well be changed for the worse forever. What's your advice to the leaders of the No campaign? What should they be doing on the ground to get their message out? What you need to have an effective campaign is to run it as a military campaign. You have to have a high command, a high command which operates by consensus, but every day and comes to something which is then spread out. And you have to have, you have to have uh, ground troops. You have to have an army of ground troops. We had both. We knew that the political parties were of no use to us in relation to the campaign. We approached people in the Liberal Party, for example, apparatchiks, people bossing the Liberal Party. I don't mean the members. And we found that uh, we weren't going to get much assistance from them. And what we needed to do was to have our own organization. So we had a grassroots army across the country. We had representation in every electorate and we had this tight high command, this central command, which would come very quickly to decisions, make very sensible decisions, be consistent. We, we, we had to make sure that we were all agreed as to our principles. There had to be one organization to do this. There were a few monarchist organizations. They didn't play the same role. We were Australians for constitutional monarchy. We were founded by some really eminent Australians, seven eminent Australians with the initial subscribers, including a former chief justice, of a former university vice chancellor, chancellor who was also uh, at one stage, the chairman of the ABC, a former Labour Lord Mayor of Sydney, a former uh, president of the New South Wales Court of Appeal who became a High Court judge. You needed all these people. We also had two leading Indigenous people, which is interesting. When you could, We had a former, the first Indigenous member of the federal parliament, Neville Bonner, who was a senator. And we had a, a lady who was a, a prominent uh, Aboriginal academic and all of these form this core group of people. Well, that's that's an interesting point that you make because there is a core group of people currently existing in this campaign. I'm referring to people like Warren Mundine, Gary Johns, um, Jacinta Price and so on. So the core, the core group of leaders do exist, but do you see these, uh, the no campaign having uh, organised the grassroots. You said you had someone in every electorate. I mean, is that an essential part of a nationwide campaign? And, uh, and is that happening? Well, you have to win nationally and you have to win in every state. And we won 
nationally and, every, and in every state. You've got to win in at least uh, three to block the chances of uh, losing it from the point of view of the states. We, we also, uh, we, we decided we would go into every electorate. So we had a coordinator in every electorate across the country. We had a director in every state and we made sure that there was constant contact. There were, uh, we had uh, some very key people at the heart of ACM. We had uh, Kerry Jones, who's no longer in uh, this sort of activity. She was our executive director. And we had David Elliott, who was our national campaign director, who was a former New South Wales minister. And they worked very hard to set up this national network. But what we made sure of was that every day during the height of the campaign, everybody was in contact so that uh, when the, the central command met and took its decisions by consensus, these were quickly relayed so that there was a there was unanimity across the country so that. Uh, but Professor, how hard was it? How difficult was it to set up that network? I mean, we, we're, we're talking just a few months out from the referendum. Is it difficult to establish this? It, it is difficult to establish it, but it, there is time to do it. And they need to raise the funds to have somebody do this and do it across the country. It, it, this is essential. We, we won 72 percent of federal electorates which in terms of an election would be an enormous landslide. It was really, really remarkable. We lost, the only electorates we lost were the, the city electorates, the, the inner city electorates. They're the ones who are going to vote yes, probably in relation to this referendum. There are some similarities here. They're the ones who, who see some, uh, some virtue signaling and voting yes on this and coming out and standing for it. You can see the big corporations it's not the big corporations, it's the executives on the big corporations who are doing this. It's the people in those positions, it's the politicians, all the sorts of people, people from the universities and so on, who are going to take a position in favour of yes. They're going to pretend it's going to solve the gap. It will solve nothing in relation to the gap. It will only make it worse. It'll make it worse because it will be a distraction and people will think that by voting yes on this, they will, they will give a solution to the gap. It won't, there won't be a solution for the gap. That will continue because that is something they believe in. They believe in the idea that uh, the remote communities should be segregated. They believe in the segregation of races. The indeed, very idea the, of the voice is the, based on segregation. Indeed, some of the key points against the voice are very simple and very easy to communicate, but yes. they are not being effectively communicated at the moment. And we are being barraged by uh, messages from the Yes campaign. At this stage... And, and, and as you said, they also believe in welfare dependency. Mm. They convert people into welfare dependents. That, that, that is the scheme. And all of the solutions that they will propose for the gap will be just to increase welfare dependency, which will only increase... Well, again, that's another message that should be loud and clear in this campaign. Now, this far out, it's roughly six months or so until the, uh, till the uh, referendum. It hasn't been given a specific date, but they're saying about October. At this point out, this far out from the referendum, would you give it as, would you give the no campaign more or greater likelihood of success than you were roughly six months out in 1999? Well, I think we were better organised. In fact, there's no doubt. Uh, 
that we were better organized. We, we knew what we wanted. We'd very carefully, it was Michael Kirby who did it, we very carefully wrote down what we believed in. We had a charter which set out what we all believed in, which was maintaining the constitution as it is now, particularly the, the crown in the constitution. We, he also wrote in that those things where some of us believed in something. And that was, that was very good because it covered the discrepancies, the areas where we did have some form of mild disagreement, but they were there in the same document. Some of us, for example, believed that we are already a republic, that is a crowned republic. Some were particularly devoted to the present sovereign and not necessarily to the whole idea of constitutional monarchy. So there were people who had slightly different views and they, we, it was meant as a very broad-based organisation. Well, that's, a, that's wonderful insight because the same applies to the no case. There are people who believe that, you know, fundamentally we simply shouldn't be divided by race. But there are, you know, there are grey areas between that going all the way to the yes case. And the no case should be more definitive about who sits in its camp. Essentially, Australia, Australians have enormous goodwill towards the traditional inhabitants of this, of this continent. And exactly. And there is this widespread view, which I doubt, and that is that there should be constitutional recognition. There is constitutional recognition. This, this will be a waste of time and money. Worse, it will be a distraction. Even if you just had constitutional recognition, the reason why it would be worse is that then people would think that the question of the gap has been solved. We've constitutionally recognised the indigenous people, they're now in the constitution as if they aren't already there. They are there, of course, they're. everybody's there yeah. in the constitution. It is a constitution which says, whereas the people of the several colonies, it lists them, whereas the people, it referred to all of the people in Australia at the time. They were all there. And when we created Australian citizenship in 1949, we didn't have to do it but it was decided to do it in 1949, separate Australian citizenship, all of the indigenous people became citizens of Australia. They're there. There's no need for constitutional recognition. Although about 90% of people probably think they should be recognised in the constitution because this has been pushed as a big thing. They are there. And the, the reason why I say it's a waste of time is it will be treated as the solution and it's not the solution. But let many people believe in it. And if you had a charter, you'd say, well, most of us believe in the need for constitutional recognition. And I, I understand that and I can see why people argue that there is a need for this. But well, most, again, the, the analogy today is that most people believe that our indigenous brothers and sisters should have a better, healthier, longer and more prosperous life. I mean, the, the problem in this debate is that that sentiment is being uh, captured by the yes case and the no case is being portrayed as the people who have ill will towards our, our indigenous population. In fact, the no case is a case for the indigenous to live better lives. And we need, as you did in 1999, we need that argument to be more clearly articulated. 
I mean, it would be, Australia would be a much worse country today if we'd voted yes in 1999. I fear for the country how it would be 24 years after this year if we vote yes in this referendum, because we will be divided and the Indigenous will be worse off, don't you think? I agree. In 1999, the model which was being put up was not just for a republic, it was for the very worst republic ever conceived. It was for a republic which would have increased the influence and the decreased the checks and balances on the politicians. It would have increased their power. That was the whole purpose of that model, and it was a very bad model. Had they been going to the Swiss model or the American model, there would have been a different debate. But this was for a model which would have taken the existing system and stripped the checks and balances away from the politicians. Well, there are no checks and balances on this occasion because we are voting for, voting in, uh, for whether or not we want pretty much a blank check for this voice to parliament. Yes. And uh, the consequences could be even worse. Professor Flint, I hope, you, I hope you, your advice has been useful to the people behind the no case, because if they don't get organized soon, this, uh, this argument could very easily be lost. Thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. That's Professor David Flint, who against the odds, led the campaign against an Australian Republic in 1999, and aren't we grateful that he did? Well, that's all from me tonight and for this week. Thanks for watching. The Other Side, hosted by Damien Curry, will premiere at 8pm on ADH, followed by David Flint's own show, Save the Nation, at 9pm. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at @fredpaul. that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, -E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. If you're looking for some of the best conservative commentary in the nation, go to ADH.TV or our app where you can watch loads of shows by Alexandra Marshall, Daisy Cousins, Lyle Shelton, David Flint, Nick Cater, and of course, the great Alan Jones on demand. Or find us wherever you get your podcasts. ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again, to I'll see you again next week on Monday at seven o'clock. Good night.